0: hello and welcome back to another episode of fret buzz the podcast my name is aaron sechik
1: my name is joe mcmurray
0: and today we have a fellow podcaster from solving sounds podcast uh brent lyons welcome brent oh thank you so much for having me this is really fun yeah yeah absolutely uh met you through some of the forums and uh yeah figured we would make some contact with each other and get some, get some uh, information going. So yeah, by all means, um, I'm excited about today's conversation because you, like us dive into this whole musical journey of musicians. Um, you're based out of Seattle. Yep. That's right. Awesome. Um, so if you could, for our audience, kind of set us up a little bit and tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah.
2: So um, I started playing music when I was about 15. I started with the drums just because I was a pent up teenager with a lot of energy. And, <laughs> and just I just wanted to like start hitting stuff. And yeah, uh, yeah. so I started taking lessons and had some uh, high school bands and stuff. And we were pretty crappy as, as you're supposed to be, I suppose. Yep. Um, and I remember we used to just record on a boom box that had a microphone. Those were my first recordings Was just setting a boom box up in the middle of the room and hit and record and
1: you know that was, but under a, under a cassette, under a cassette, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah I
2: remember um, my mom had some old uh, Kenny G tapes that she didn't want anymore, so we would record over those over top and of them. So it would be like ninety percent our music, but then like ten percent you could still kind of hear like Kenny G like yeah. in the spaces. Yeah. Yeah. So that's how I got started. Um, <laughs> and then a couple of years after doing that, I was getting kind of frustrated as a drummer just because. Always felt like I was kind of coming in and responding to what the guitar player was bringing in, you know, his riffs and stuff. And I was like, man, I don't really get to be as creative as I want to be as a drummer, as just a a songwriter. So um, I switched to guitar and started taking guitar lessons. I upgraded to a Tascam four-track recorder. Started doing some real complex recording to my you know 17 year old brain or whatever at the time right. felt that way <laughs> um and just went from there i that's kind of where i started um recording by myself just for fun doing whole songs by myself that first uh foo fighter record that uh dave Grohl did all by himself was really mind-blowing for me that was the first time i had heard of anyone doing something like that um and from there i just played in different bands throughout the years and um I made a lot of acquaintances in the scene as you do. You know, it's like you go to shows and you want to talk to people, but it's like super loud because everyone's like rocking out and stuff. And uh, yeah, and so I started this podcast to, to be able to sit someone down and ask them everything I ever wanted to know about them and kind of figure out how they learned instruments and stuff. And it's like, how did you write that song? How did you record that album? How did you meet your bandmates? You know, so that's, that's kind of how I got to where I am
0: now. Well that's that's awesome. Um not to mention that yeah you are in the the Seattle scene. Obviously that's been iconic in the past. Sure. Um what 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 is going on there musically now? I mean ob- obviously it's still thriving um but do you see a change at all happening? Yeah, definitely. I think the biggest change
2: I've seen is just this breaking off into many different scenes happening all at the same time. Hmm. You know, there's definitely still kind of like the heavy sludgy rock thing happening but there's a huge like indie rock thing happening there's a huge like folky kind of in uh acoustic thing happening and yeah um i would just say instead of everyone just playing you know like grunge music or whatever there's a ton of different genres and scenes happening all at the same time yeah
0: yeah yeah as usually i mean everybody knows seattle for the grudge rock but obviously there was a whole lot more going on at that time you know obviously because of pearl jam and nirvana um they kind of made that whole thing happen Um, yeah but obviously there is a whole lot more going on
2: (laughs) yeah and (laughs) one other um huge change is um a lot of the venues that used to host All those 90s bands are closing Mm. because of, you know, Microsoft and Amazon. It's like Seattle's going through this weird transformation now where a lot of those historic buildings are getting torn down for, you know, condos that no one can afford. Right. So uh, there's definitely that element to the scene where um, it's getting harder and harder to to play shows and, and have active venues that want to bring local bands in. Yeah. That's a shame.
1: That's like what happened in Arlington with Iota Cafe. Yep. Mm-hmm. It was like right. one of the cooler clubs for local bands to come in. And I think the whole block was uh bought by a developer and people were like trying to protest on social media and stuff, but didn't do mm. anything. No, money speaks louder than words.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Unfortunately. You for know, you sure. do you do see some of these iconic studios and um venues that that are Unfortunately, just being bought and like you said, torn down, and condos are being built. It is a shame, you know. These are iconic places that have, you know, been a very big placeholder in history in terms of what's been going on in rock and roll and music in general.
2: Yeah, and uh, you really see, you know, artists can only afford kind of cheap living to survive. So, you know, we used to see so many artists in places like capitol hill and downtown and stuff and it added so much cultural value and currency to the community Mm. and then you see just it becomes so much more expensive to live here that it kind of drives the artists out and you kind of lose so much of that identity and everything just gets kind of plain and boring and all the artists move to you know another cheap place to live and kind of create it all back up again
0: yeah yeah, it's um, it's happening all over, um, you know, like going back to the 60s or 70s that happened with San Francisco right. uh, and L.A. Um, it's happening right now, currently with Nashville. Um, Nashville used to be fairly affordable. Uh, now it's just a booming town and you do see a lot of the um, musicians moving outwards um, into the suburbs and whatnot like that. Um, I know with Nashville, I haven't followed up with it lately. Uh, I know there was a big thing going on. If anybody in the audience knows, uh, email me, but, um, I know with Nashville, they were going through this big thing of how they were shutting studios down that were out of houses since we're kind of talking about that today. Um, any businesses that were in a house and they were a studio, there were some kind of city ordinance against that. And they were shutting people down, uh, wow. which is, which is really weird for a city of music, uh, which, yeah. which was the whole hubbub about the whole thing is this like, really? We're the, We're the city of music. We're known for this. And you're starting to go after people who are, you know, recording music out of their houses and making businesses out of it. So it's it was this whole I know a couple months back. It was this whole thing. And I don't know whether anything has become of that or not. But, yeah, it's it's a shame what's happening in terms of um, the money that's, you know, kind of unfortunately having a say over history. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah. And art especially.
1: Yeah. In in Seattle, is the scene the type of scene where you as a band go out and play and you're paid to play, or is it more of a pay to play scene? Um or is it is there some of both depending on which of those sub scenes you were talking about?
2: It's a little bit of both. Um there's definitely a few clubs that make you sell tickets that's and it's (laughs) like you have to like yeah yeah you have to like buy the tickets in advance and then sell them to like make the money back but fortunately there's only like one or two that still do that but the thing i see a lot more now is um venues just have really expensive um not fees but they just take a lot off the door and they usually say it's for like the sound guy or like a room fee or something like that but it'll I've seen it be like 80 to like a hundred dollars. Wow. Off the door, which is pretty gnarly.
0: Wow, that's that's pretty steep.
2: <laughs> yeah. Wow. But there's there's definitely places. Um, I always kind of call them more like house party shows where there'll be like this cool tavern that's a little smaller, hmm. and they'll just have the band come in and play, and you know, the band gets all the door and the venue just gets, you know, the bar sales, of course. But um, <laughs> I've seen that with the more small venues, less kind of like corporate venues. And, and that's been working out great. But it, a lot of the times you'll see like the sound quality won't be as good. Like the PAs won't be as powerful. Right. Especially if you're in like a and band, you know, the guitar mm-hmm. amps will like blast the venues like PAs. So you kind of have to be conscious of that. And yeah. like the monitor
0: systems <laughs> won't be as good. So it's, it's a give and take so uh you're obviously going out and active within the music scene and seeing some good bands out there um is there anybody i don't want to put you on the spot but is there uh, is there anybody on your radar that you're like hmm these these guys are really good and i think the an up and coming band type of thing
2: yeah i just um interviewed uh her name's uh Julie Bartlett from a band called uh, Guest Directors. Mm -hmm. And they're, they're like right up my alley. They're super kind of like shoegazy and spacey. Like they kind of have like a swerve driver cure thing going on. And they have um, the, speaking of scale grunge, um, the guitar player from the band Tad, Gary Thorntonson. Do you know Tad? No. They're kind of in the same vein as like, um, do you know Mud Honey? Yeah. 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 So they're kind of like, The grunge bands that were happening before nirvana like they kind of like brought nirvana up yeah yeah um so anyway um the guitar player from tad is in this band guest directors and i just think they're awesome they just put out a new ep and they're really good um there's another heavy band called uh stereo creeps they're just about to put a new album out called suck and um they're super cool they're kind of avant garde but still like heavy at the same time. Like uh they have really weird arrangements and stuff. They w- really work against the kind of verse chorus, first chorus thing. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um let's see. There's uh one other band called uh Warren Dunes. They're kind of more upbeat, up tempo, kind of like I don't know how do I it's like upbeat indie rock with kind of like a jazzy kind of feel to it. Um they're really great too so i would recommend all those seattle bands like Mm. look out for them i think they're going to be doing some cool stuff
0: cool yeah definitely have to check those guys out yeah awesome and so okay uh just before we quick jump in um so you have your podcast solving Mm -hmm. sounds um and that comes out uh weekly uh every other week i uh
2: i would like to do it every week but um (laughs) as y'all know i'm sure uh it's hard to (laughs) (laughs) just a little bit (laughs) i i feel like if i did it every week the commitment of just the like administrative work of Mm. like emailing people recording it (laughs) editing it like honestly i dread editing podcasts you know i really and i barely do any editing at all yeah um but just like recording the intro and all that and writing the show notes. Hate doing that. Um, <laughs> but I just kind of felt like if I did it every week, it would be kind of, it would turn into a stressful thing. Yeah, Whereas yeah. I feel like every other week, it's a little bit more casual. I can kind of take my time, pick my moments, and it always kind of feels fun. So to answer your question, I release every other Tuesday. That's my schedule.
1: Okay. Okay. Wonderful. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. yeah we're, we're fortunate we have, we have two of us. Yeah, Which helps a little bit. Say, so yeah. Aaron. Aaron still takes the brunt of it, but <laughs> yeah, the, the editing. Yeah, it's I just
2: know. me doing everything, yep. but I kind of like it that way.
0: Yeah, you, you have control. That's yeah, for sure. exactly right.
1: Um, I listened to your episode with Lance Hofstad.
0: Oh, good I choice. Was,
1: I really enjoyed that, and I I did feel like your show has a similar. Um, Kind of vibe and overall goal to our show just Mm -hmm. to explore other people's thoughts about music and really to dig in Yeah, I really
2: loved that episode He was um, the first person that I had on that I had actually been in a band with uh, in the past And so I thought it would be kind of cool because I was so close to his writing process and I respected him so much That I really felt like I could really dive deep into the nitty-gritty and he's such a unique guy um like you know we were talking about like the bullhorn and stuff Um, that that was his megaphone that he yeah 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 he's just completely original that way so um i was really proud of that episode because i thought we really got to talk about some cool topics and kind of his original approach to songwriting and a lot of um show um dynamics you know how to get people interested in a show and kind of breaking the fourth wall and um audience
1: participation all that kind of stuff for for our listeners who haven't heard that episode you should Mm -hmm. listen to that episode but the bullhorn that he was referring to in order to get the audience involved in the show and because you know you've all been at a show where everybody's sit, you know standing towards the back of the room and the band's up there playing they're really trying to get all the audience to come forward and dance and enjoy themselves so the guy lance actually comes in from the back of the room with a megaphone and like points at people and tells them to come up to the front of the room and like he really,
2: just, he just starts saying, yep. He's like, yep, 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 yep. And he, like, <laughs> makes eye contact with people and points at them. And it's always great because the audience is really kind of thrown off right away. Oh yeah. And at first they're like, is this dude in the band? Is this some like crazy dude off the street? Like who is this guy? And then you kind of see this arc where they kind of figure out like, oh no, this is all like part of the show. And it just kind of breaks this kind of preconceived notion about what a show should be. And I think people get like excited and he kind of, you know, shepherds them up closer to the band. And it's just this to me, I always thought it was a great way of just kind of breaking people out of their comfort zone. And everyone's kind of like on their heels, like what's about to happen, you yeah. know, what's happening right now. And I just love that.
0: Yeah. It's, it's, it's actually brilliant because you're, you're, you're right from the get go, you're pulling them in. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. great. That's great.
1: Yeah. I, I, I'm trying to rethink some of my some of my ways that I I um need talk to the one. audience. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if I'm gonna copy that one. At least for my kinds of shows by myself, that would be a little, little over the top for you know, I'm usually the guy in the corner of a bar right now or somewhere. I don't need people to all come and form a <laughs> dance floor. Yeah. But in you a band it. situation, that there are times where some sort of gimmick like that would have been very useful. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, it's hard. I think people naturally like want to stand back; like they're afraid to get really close to the stage. Mm -hmm. And um, I think just kind of letting people know that it's okay
1: and that you want them to get involved is is really helpful.
0: Yeah, go ahead, Joe.
1: I was gonna say we had a a guest, Joe Ham of El Sistema, on several weeks ago, and I got the I had the opportunity to play with him a couple times in a jazz quartet, but we also got into some pop stuff and more modern stuff and he actually in the middle of the show he's like we're going let's try this thing so he he calls out to the audience and he has somebody say one topic and somebody said something about aliens and then he calls on somebody else and they brought up something and we, we ended up like in we improvised the song and our singer sang about aliens doing whatever that i forgot what the other person <laughs> said but it was really it worked really well because people were actually invested in the song because they had brought up the topics from the audience right right and it was it was one of the more successful things i've been involved in wow it's a pretty
2: cool improvisation exercise right there (laughs)
1: yeah yeah
0: Yeah, not exactly easy to do
1: on the spot that's for sure unfortunately the the singer is pretty good with her lyrics yeah but yeah we just had the bass players started a riff and we kind of came up with the groove and she made it up about aliens
0: that's that's it's interesting there's a there's a that's yeah, really cool yeah you know, there's a podcast that i listened to recently um called song salad um mm. and it's it's an interesting concept they actually have a random generator of genres so there's like 500 genres where they'll randomly pick a genre of music and then they'll go to google and put in a random generator for google and it'll come up with a random subject and they have to r- write about that subject in the random genre each week and it's wow. it is a little strange sometimes <laughs> sometimes they succeed sometimes they don't but it's it's a good idea because in, in terms of the musicality behind it i listen to it because of when they do have a genre that like last week they had a, a typical march like um um uh, basically what you would think for like for the military or something like that and then he kind of dives into all the properties that make up a march and it, it's kind of interesting so it, it, that's the reason i listen to it is to kind of get a, a better idea of all the genres that are out there and what kind of makes up and constitutes that actual genre so yeah, it's it's not easy. <laughs> uh, I was just
2: talking to someone about um, the positivity of putting creative constraints on yourself. Because mm. sometimes you can kind of get stuck in your own way or you get kind of, uh, I don't know, in your comfort zone or you figure something out and then you just hit that same button over and over again. And when you put constraints like that on, like um, choosing a random genre or random words, it kind of makes your brain work in a different way. And even if the end result isn't exactly what you want, just kind of pushing the limits like that can really help your creativity. And maybe that sparks something that you end up using or liking.
0: Yep. Yep. I listened to as well, um, uh, Graham Cochran of the recording revolution. And he does that type of thing a lot where he'll actually tell his audience to, you know, only use stock plugins from, you know, pro tools. You're not allowed to use any, you know, third-party plugins or you know uh, joe gilder will tell you same types same type of thing um but putting those constraints on any musician will actually kind of sometimes push you further because you only have so many things that you can work with and then you have to push yourself as an artist to to really work those tools mm-hmm. yeah same thing with
2: like uh analog versus pro tools like only having a certain amount of tracks that Mm -hmm. you have available versus like pro tools where you can just create endless tracks it's like you can kind of (laughs) drive yourself crazy with the endless possibilities yeah but only having a set amount of tracks kind of forces you to make creative decisions in the moment you know yeah
0: yeah
1: i I like putting uh physical restraints on myself in my practice sometimes like i'm not allowed to use my second finger something like that oh wow Um, it can be an interesting exercise to just try to get you out and to not play in a sp- certain position on the guitar. Right. That's, That's one of the most effective things. Before. Yeah, it's especially helpful in, like, if I'm soloing over a jazz tune that I've played over a lot, like, if I stay in the same spot, like, there's a tendency to want to do certain types of licks. And but if you just move into a different area of the fretboard that you're not used to playing in for that tune, it makes a huge difference. Like, you just, you're forced to play something completely different. Yeah,
2: no. Can I ask yeah. uh, you guys a question real fast? Is that yeah. allowed? Should... Yeah,
0: go right ahead. <laughs>
2: anything so, you want to um, ask, go ahead. <laughs> so I am not a virtuoso guitar player. <laughs> I'm a, more of like a rhythm guy and who kind of like, uh, I never took like classic training or anything. Yeah, and yeah. so I'm always fascinated by um, people who like do a ton of soloing or lead playing. And uh, I was curious how, uh, you figure that out like do you I've heard a lot of people um, talk about like the boxes for like leads you know and that always seemed crazy to me because I I remember my guitar teacher tried to show me just like finger positions for for scales and stuff and that just like didn't resonate with me it's like I wanted to know what the notes were in the key and like why I was doing that and so it's like that's sort of like the longer and like harder way to do it I never quite mastered it so like how do you guys like Solo, is it just kind of the the box thing, or what are you thinking about?
1: Do you want to go first, Aaron?
0: Um, no, go ahead. Go ahead.
1: All right. Well, I mean, when I'm teaching a student to improvise, the box is very helpful because it gives them, you know, kind of puts restraints. There's there's a finite number of options. So, I mean, I literally give them one note at the beginning. I say, if we're playing, you know, start with something simple something in the key of A minor or something and give them the note A and make them play a solo using the note A. And the way you do that is by changing the rhythm of how you play that note and changing your pick attack and things like that. And then I give them two notes, maybe A and C, the root and the minor third. And then I let them play around with that. And, you know, the the root's going to be very, it's going to feel very resolved when you land on that. It has a sense of, uh, feels very final very like the end yeah whereas if you land on the minor third it's not quite as stable sounding and you kind of build from there and I, i'm often thinking about the intervals within the key if it's a if it's a single key kind of song so i'm i'm thinking about like a lot of call and response a lot of like you know you play a flurry of notes and land on the two which in the key of minor is the b and which sounds very unresolved and then i'll play another maybe a similar kind of lick and land on the a or the c to to give it a sense of question and then response Mm -hmm. there's a lot of that for me and you know i i do try to follow the chord progression as well it sometimes that can sound too jazzy in a rock situation but you know if you have a chord progression and you try to play the chord tones of those chords, it'll sound good. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there's a bunch of different approaches. What do you, what do you think, Aaron?
0: Um, well brent you were saying you know in terms of how you wanted to learn it was the notes and like you were in the minority <laughs> Yeah, <I know. laughs> all of my students just want to know the pattern just for me the pattern i'm always like no it's it's more than the pattern you need to know the notes so i would love to have a student like you <laughs> oh, <thanks. laughs> but, but it's the longer and harder
2: road to take right
0: it is but you know you know exactly you're learning the language you know right it's, it's you you are more fluent in how you are able to construct these lines. Um, for me,'m uh, I, I like to feel it. Um, I don't think about the intervals, and I don't think about the root and the third. Um, I'm I just kind of let my <clears throat> ear take me where I need to go. Uh, I like to explore the neck for fun. Um, I try not to stay in the same shapes. Um, And I do move from quote-unquote box to box. Um, But I'm not really hard-fast on any of that. I'm usually just letting my ear kind of guide me in terms of the sound that I'm looking for, whether I should be playing an E on the fifth string or that same E on the fourth string or how I want it to come across. Um... I think that for me, um, just that that overall feel is really what's important to me. If I play something, now this is all improv, of course, um, but if I play something and I hear something, uh, what I try to tell my students uh, is is that once you hear something that you like, try to repeat it. Try to repeat it a couple times. Try to repeat it, you know, like two times or four times, and try to make that lick. Come alive, um, the more that you play it. So if you hear something that kind of piques your interest, go back to it and run it again, Um, and then kind of you start to get into these kind of lines that are repeatable, and the listener actually can kind of identify with it as well because it's already been played and they hear it again. Like, ooh, that's kind of nice. I like how that was. You know, I already have that motif stuck in my head. Let's hear it again. Um, so, yeah, for me, it's more of a feel type of thing when I jump into guitars, just like uh, I already know my patterns. Uh, now I'll just forget the patterns and just kind of just play. Mm-hmm. I,
1: I think it is really important to learn some, ac- some licks from other lead players. Oh, yes. I, absolutely. I think that you have to learn how to make your fingers move in that way. And then you can start creating your own licks in that style. You know, it's, I mean, I, I think it's important if you want to play like jam band kind of lead guitar, it's pretty helpful to learn a couple Stevie Ray Vaughan or Albert King kind of licks, BB King licks. And then you, you know, you have those as you can go to them and then you can maybe start one of those licks and take it somewhere new, but you got to understand how to get that sound in order to make up your own things that sound good in that genre. Mhm. Yeah, it's interesting for me I don't have a big theory
2: background. It's like I know what song a key is in that I'm writing, but normally when I write a lead, I just really sit down and just kind of go note by note and just kind of figure out like what's working um and just it's like I'll figure out what notes are in the scale mm-hmm. and then just kind of bounce around and it's real kind of trial and error for me, but um it's a very kind of slow process, but that's kind of my style in general. Um, I was just talking to someone. It's like, there's um, a lot of people that just like to kind of like get in a room and jam with people and kind of see what happens. Whereas I'm kind of more the type that likes to like go in my room and kind of hide and kind of come up with something and kind of do the trial and error thing. And then when I'm happy with it, I then like present it to people. That's just kind of my approach. And I kind of take that, that same approach with, um, writing leads where it is very sort of trial and error, just kind of sitting there kind of the hard way, just kind of
0: piecing it together. Yeah. You're actually, you're actually composing a piece. You're actually making sure all the parts sound right versus, and there's advantages to both where you can, you know, like you say, go into a band environment when you guys kind of all jam it out. Um, That's, that's, very good in terms of exploratory. You might hear something from somebody else that sparks an interest or an idea in you, and you can kind of go off and do that. Um, I've had success with that. I've also not had success with that in terms of when I teach bands, because a lot of the times people aren't really paying attention to other people. They're kind of just paying attention to themselves. Um, And that can go on for like an hour. And you don't really get anything done um, <laughs> uh, We use
2: any of that <laughs> right
0: exactly it, it was more yeah. just like okay we just danced for an hour and okay sure <laughs> I'll yeah. probably forget everything that I just did um, so there are there are pros and cons to that but then at the same time there's the whole um, you know composition and writing something out um, And there's many ways to go about doing that. I've also played with people in the past where they're like, no, I don't like that approach because I think music should be more of an organic type of thing. I don't want to go to a concert and hear the same thing every single concert. So, uh, you know, to each their own and their, you know, however you want to write is completely up to you. And how you go about writing a lead or a solo or something like that, a lick, um, there's many ways to do that as well. Um, sitting down with note by note and and kind of figuring out what note comes next that's that's perfectly fine sometimes i'll i'll hum something or i'll whistle something in the car and i'll you know throw in voice memo or i'll just kind of record it and then i'll later on in the night i'll sit down with my guitar and try to figure out some of those licks because you do want a lick to be somewhat hummable you want be able to you want a, a listener to be able to walk away and kind of sing it themselves you know that that whole earworm type of thing um Yeah, there's there's many ways to go about writing a solo or a lick. yeah, I think for
2: me, I would just like to get um, more of a theory background. Just I was always kind of the impatient teenager who just wanted to, like, play the song. It's like to my teacher. It's like, just show me the chords. I just want to play the song, you know, and I really regret not taking the time and having the discipline to learn more theory. And it's something I would like to do now as an adult and just kind of have in my back pocket and uh, just be more. Loose with my plane because right now I just feel like my plane is very intentional or something, but it's like it's hard for me to just kind of explore in the space. Like, like I was saying earlier, I, I'm much more comfortable kind of like in my room, figuring it out and then bringing it, you know, and yeah, and it, it's it's fine that way. Um, there's nothing wrong with it, but yeah, just for me personally, I'm kind of at a place where I'd like to kind of open up my plane a little bit and just be a little more loose and just kind of have the knowledge in my back pocket that i can just kind
1: of rely on in the moment yeah yeah i think that having the theory it allows you to i think it speeds up the process i think you can get there either way but i think it when you do know the the theory it it just happens faster yeah you're trying to lick you kind of know your options and it's a little less trial and error you kind of know one thing's going to sound one way right but you may not, you know, sometimes you get stuck following the rules a little too much, and you do have to, yeah, try to not think about it so much in order to write something different. Yeah, yeah, I remember
2: uh, my guitar teacher told me, uh, You need to
0: know the rules before you can break them. Yep. Yeah. I thought that was a good. Very true. (laughs) Say that every day. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's a two-sided. It's a two-sided sword. Uh, Knowing theory, you obviously know all the tools in your your tool chest, and you can use any one of them at any time, and it's good to be able to do that. Um, But the other side of that sword is is that when you, like Joe was saying, once you... Start to know the rules you have a tendency to follow them a lot right um, and it's hard to break them um, I know for me like when I was young and I didn't know any theory uh, it was just you know <laughs> no rules I could to make anything that I want and I can go back and listen to any one of those songs that I were when I was younger and I go where's the theory behind that like oh my gosh I was I was thinking of some crazy chord changes that may not go together or maybe instead of like um, a lead line guitar wise moving in from chord to chord it was like a vocal thing that led me to the next chord which has nothing to do with that key um now later in life i'm just more you know theory this is the way this works and this is why this works and i kind of go at at a different approach so there is that you know that innocence that is good to have because you have no rules um, so, like I said, it's a double-edged—it's a double-edged sword. You, you, there's benefits to knowing theory, and at the same time, not as—I will say—the benefits definitely outweigh. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's—it's uh, it's it, the whole theory thing is—is is interesting. You, you fight it, especially at a young age. You fight it for so long, and then, like you said, getting older in life, you kind of sit there and go, ah, "I wish I would have paid a little more attention to it."
2: yeah just having more discipline mm. one um area where I really see it uh come up is uh when I started to sing and do you know melodies over my songs mm. because like you were saying as a teenager you can kinda it's easier to get away with writing guitar parts and bass parts or keyboard parts in like wacky non linear uh scales or something but then when you try to sing over it at least for me it became really obvious like oh i can't do the punk rock thing of just opening my mouth whenever comes out is great i actually need to like really pay attention to the key of the song and then i became very um focused on melody Mm -hmm. and how that was kind of counter to the riff like um when I would write um, a vocal part, I would actually write write it on a keyboard first. Like I'd figure out the key of the song, and then um, write the melody on a keyboard, and then I'd actually record that as sort of like a backing track.
0: That's perfect.
2: And then I would I would write the lyrics so the syllables matched the the keyboard part. That's awesome. And that was that was a huge breakthrough for me because I I feel like when I was just singing randomly, I felt like that lack of theory wasn't helping because I'd be kind of pitchy and not know it, Mm. but then actually figuring out where the exact notes were on the keyboard and singing to that, that was like a
0: game changer. I recommend that to all of my vocalists and all the bands is to do exactly that. Sit down with the piano and actually figure out the melodic line that you're singing, Mm. that it helps so much. Your confidence just goes through the roof in terms of knowing exactly where I need to be vocally. Uh, it's night and day and i
2: feel like it really helps you write better melodies Mm. because i think a lot of the time in the past the melody would kind of cater to the rhythm or sounds of the words like Mm. i was thinking more about like the enunciation or something like Mm. that or like the mannerisms of saying the words as opposed to what the melody lines actually were like they weren't as like hooky I would, I think, because I think I was thinking more about the words as opposed to the sound and the melody.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, that's perfect. <laughs> it really is. It's, they marry so much, they marry so much better that way versus trying to, you know, put a square peg into a round hole. You know, it's like, well, right. <laughs> these lyrics, they're just gonna work. And it's like, oh, okay, sure. But if it was crafted, you know, like you're talking about, it's just gonna sound so much, the, the flow of the song is gonna be so much better.
2: Mm hmm. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I, I learned my lesson the hard way. Like when I was in my early 20s, like I would just write songs and totally did the punk rock thing of just whatever came out of my mouth. That's good enough. And yeah, it'll work, you know, and yeah, yeah, yeah. I quickly got smacked down like, oh, this, this is not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, And exactly. needing like an instrument and spend, you know, years working on it, you know, like I totally was just like, oh, yeah, I'll just, you know, whatever comes out is good. And it's like, no, no, no. Like, yeah. I have a whole new respect for singers just in terms of that discipline. And also the vulnerability. Like, it's so much more vulnerable to sing as opposed to just, like, plucking a string or hitting a drum. You know, it's, it's a whole <laughs> other world, man.
1: Yeah, you know if you pluck, put your finger down in the right spot, if your guitar is in tune and you pluck that string, it's going to sound, the right note will sound. Yeah. But singing you are a lot of other factors.
2: Yeah, for sure.
1: <laughs> yeah. I I find that with the piano or at least going back to what you were saying about knowing the actual melody that you're singing um or playing on your instrument mm-hmm. I find that it it is very helpful to see the music or to play it on the piano and then you kind of know where you can create variations um a lot of times you know I'll I'll create a vocal melody or a just a instrumental melody and it'll be okay but then it, once you know what it actually is you can actually adjust and add little um you know little what do you call it uh melism not melismas something like you know when you hear Alicia Keys singing she does all the fancy oh, vocal yeah, yeah. runs yeah yeah you know like little riffs off the main melody you it's hard to do that without knowing the actual melody mm. or yeah, at least where you are pitch. within the chord
2: mm-hmm.
1: yeah so i think it just it helps you to take your melody and maybe like if your last chorus you want to go up and make it extra climactic if you mm-hmm. know what the original melody was you know you can go up like your prop your voice probably can't go up an octave to sing the same thing an octave higher unless right. you're like freddie mercury or something but if you go up maybe if you were singing on the fifth of the chord you know that's the time maybe that last chorus go up to the root of the chord and kind of Sing kind of what would be a harmony line, um, but because it's the last chorus, and if you're the only singer, it just sounds extra climactic. Right.
2: Yeah. Same thing with like harmonies as well, I would think. Yeah. yeah. Like kind of having that foundation to then work
1: off of, like you were saying. Way easier to write harmonies oh. if you know what notes your the original melody is. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> Way easier. I yeah. was I used to like not understand at all how people sang harmonies. And then like, once I figured it out, it was like, oh, oh, like, (laughs) like even just knowing the first note of the line where that sits within the chord. And like I said, jumping up to the next note within the chord, if you're singing, if the melody's on the root of the chord, try singing off the third and just try to sing in tune from there is the simplest way. Like to get started, you can write it out, but yeah, the piano or the guitar is very helpful. Blows my mind when people like when people don't want it. They're scared of the the piano or they're scared of the guitar, and they they push it aside as like too much work. Mm-hmm. I'm like, you're you're creating more work for yourself in the long run by not utilizing the tools that are available to you. Yeah, or yeah, you're at sure. least limiting your potential. Yeah, you can't go wrong by knowing more. Not really. Yet. I really feel like in the long run, whether it's theory or technical ability, knowing more, practicing more can't really hurt you.
2: How long did it take you guys to get that theory foundation, would you say, before you felt comfortable?
1: Oh.
0: (laughs) Well, that's two different questions. (laughs) Okay. It, It took me probably I'd say the better part of two to three years to get to get the theory part of it down, um, but to be comfortable with it, oh my goodness, I'd
1: say upwards of five to seven years. Wow, yeah. I don't think I could quantify what it is, but I do know that you can get a grasp of diatonic chords pretty quick. I, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, if I can yeah. sit down with a teenager and in, in about an hour have them understand diatonic keys you know the one chord two three four five six seven and like mm-hmm. maybe after a couple lessons you can you can get into how dominant seventh chords can help you change keys but oh my gosh no I've, it,
0: you're so you, you and is, i have a little bit of a different approach like the whole diatonic chords i i take about a month to a month and a half to teach all that
1: yeah cause. you you'd have said that you take it much slower i yeah. like to get it i just have a hard time holding my students interest i try to get the information there and then try to get them playing using that and like they don't have it just because the one lesson but i try not to like stay on that topic for too long without playing the instrument yeah
0: i I find that if i give them all the information just like method books it's just that i can ask them the same question in two months time and they have no idea they're just like yeah i forgot all that information i'm like yeah Whereas if I take them through the entire process, now sometimes it is painstaking, but nonetheless, if I take them through that process of intervals and understanding exactly how to build a chord and why the third is so important and just that process with every single chord, you know, two months, three months down the line, if I ask them, they're like, yep, got it. Root, third, fifth, blah, 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 these are the chords, one, four, five, okay? And I'm like, that's what I'm looking for.
2: Do you guys have any books
1: or resources that you would recommend for theory? I'm yeah. actually writing uh, something myself right now. Oh, cool. we're going to, we're going to edit Aaron and I are going to edit it and release it as kind of a, yeah. Fred are... Buds handbook. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. awesome.
0: Yeah. We're um, going to try to make a workbook. So it's, uh you know, all this stuff is, is easily understandable. I mean, there's tons of stuff out there, but it's always about uh, how it's presented um, and, exactly what we're talking about right now is is the process that we're going through. Yeah, That's really cool. I can't wait to check that
1: out. Yeah, yeah. I'd be happy to send you an advanced copy and it. If you wanted to give me some uh, feedback on what might not make sense to you, because to me it makes perfect sense. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it would, it would I, be I, helpful I that. actually. Yeah. That, that sounds awesome. Writing yeah. something. It's been interesting writing about these things because you do. I think I started out writing about diatonic chords and then I realized, okay, if, And, you know, if someone was to read this, depending on what background they have, would they understand the basics that I use to do that? So then I had to go back and I kept having to go back until I ended up writing from like the very beginning of music. Yep. Like the key of C. whole laugh. What what are the notes available? What are the notes of music? And then like, yeah, it was, it's been an interesting thing and it's helped me being able to teach because mm-hmm. you know when you put it down on paper, it's helpful. But I I do think that you know what works for me doesn't necessarily work for you, and I, it, it's why I have I have like two hundred books beside me, and I mean I'm I'm a bookworm. But I everybody's got a little different approach, and depending on what you're trying to use it for in the long run, some approaches work better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. like I think different ways. If I'm improvising lead guitar i think about it differently than if i'm sitting down to write songs
0: right yeah.
1: um, i know
0: i know for me brent um when i was going through this whole process um i'm the kind of personality where i have to um i have to go through it on a hands-on type of thing uh, that's just the way i learn um so for me method books Um, they more of a reading approach did not work for me Um, what did work for me in terms of books was what we're doing right now is the whole workbook where you would actually have to go through and fill out the answers and go through the process and apply it to your guitar and hear it and then you know that whole process over again work it you know fill in the answers Play it on the guitar, hear it, and that back and forth, and actually applying it, that's actually what worked for me. So workbooks, the things that actually make you go through the process, that's, that's what made it make sense for me, at least.
2: Yeah, I think that really makes sense. Yeah, it's one thing to just read on the page. It's another to kind of live it and try and work it through mm-hmm. hands-on, you know, just kind of engage your brain in that way of kind of bringing it to life.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's exactly it. You know, I would read multiple <laughs> method books and it would all be up here, but I, I didn't make sense really until I actually applied it in a workbook, you know, going stage by stage by stage, m- actually making me go through that process. It was kind of like, oh, oh, uh, now it makes sense. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah that so, sounds awesome.
1: It's very helpful also if, you, if you're if you going back to the lead guitar thing. If you want to play lead guitar Aside from knowing how to play some licks that sound good, like you have to really understand what key the song is in mm-hmm. and then what your options are for playing that key. And like the diatonic chords thing is so helpful because like if you got a chord progression that's like C, F, G, you can essentially play C major scale notes. You can play because that's the one, four, and five chords of the key of C major. Mm-hmm c d e f g Mm -hmm. and so if you do that you can you know you can use c major pentatonic scale um but you're eventually you're gonna be it's gonna all sound bland after a while so you start to learn like you can also use like a c mix lydian scale you start learning all the other things and that theory like you just have to know where you can use certain things playing in playing lead guitar in a band, like somebody will throw out a chord progression and they're like, play a little lick over this. And, you know, you could trial and error, just like loop it and play around. But if you really know your theory, you're like, okay, this is in this key. I can do this to make it sound Almond Brothers-y. Z. I can do this to make it sound more Stevie Ray Vaughan. Or it's, just, it's very helpful to know the theory and to not necessarily... I mean, Aaron likes to Write it down, but I like taking it and then just like trying to play over something using what I was learning about. Mm. Yeah, but that's more for a lead guitar kind of. Yeah, well, that's what I'm interested scene. in.
0: So, how how long have you been playing uh the guitar, Brent?
2: Uh, I started when I was about 17, so that would be 17 years ago. <laughs> yeah, okay. before I did some math. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, I started taking lessons and um, it's kind of funny. I uh, came up in the uh, right when like AOL came out and stuff. And I remember I kind of did myself a disservice because I would always start to look tabs up on the internet for songs. (laughs) So it kind of hurt my ear training a little bit. Just like looking back, like I took like every shortcut I could. I was all about I just wanted to learn and play songs. I was just Always into like songwriting, dynamics, like sequencing. That was always my thing. And still is for the most part. But um but yeah, I just wanted to learn songs right away. And once I learned, you know, like the power chord, it was just on, you know, in terms of like <laughs> writing these crappy three chord punk songs, you know. And, it um,
0: works, man. It
2: works. Yeah. Um and uh, I always got really into um like the shoegazy, spacey thing for some reason like i'm not super into gear but i love like delay especially in reverb and
1: kind of playing with that um atmospheric type of things yeah what, yeah for sure do you have anything in particular on your pedal board that sounds um, awesome
2: i have this uh dan electro reverse delay pedal oh. uh let's see let me look at it real fast it's just called a, a talk, i guess um but that thing was just so crazy to me because it plays the signal straight the first time, and then every other time it's backwards, and you can kind of set how many times it plays it and like the frequency and stuff like that. And uh, that was just a really weird, cool, spacey thing that I use a lot. Um, I also, it's funny, I'm not a, a big Ibanez guy at all, but um, I have a few of their pedals, and I have their uh, DE7 delay pedal. That I've always used I got it when I was 17 or 18 and I still use it and um, it's it's a super solid pedal I was actually looking on uh, YouTube recently and it kind of has this like vintage quality about it like uh it's kind of funny <laughs> to me because I think I paid like 50 bucks for it in yeah. 2000 I don't know two or three something like that yeah. and now it's like super expensive comparatively it's like doubled or tripled in value and I'm just like oh wow it's crazy like I always thought of as, as just this kind of like functioning thing right um yeah. but yeah I, it's funny i was just talking uh, to a friend about this like when i was a teenager i like was shocked that i had to pay a hundred dollars for the like chromatic tuner pedal i was like a 100 bucks for a tuner pedal that's like insane but yeah. you know i still use it to this day
1: and it's you know crucial so <laughs> <laughs> oh my i would have never bought the tuning pedal but somebody in my old band was like, wanted me to have it and gave it to me as a gift. Yeah. As uh, so I played it at his wedding <laughs> and it was like, and now that I have it, I would never go back. But it's like you can buy a snark for like, you know, twenty bucks. Yeah. Oh, wow. Why do you need to pay so much for a pedal that does the same thing? Yeah. But it is nice as a muting pedal. Exactly. Especially I was about to say that <clears throat> live, yeah. yeah, it helps kill the signal. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. I used to mess around with volume pedals live and. I don't know I just didn't like it like I just always found myself kind of neurotically like stepping on it to make sure it was at 100% cause right I was kind of worried it would kind of slightly go down and like right 80 or 90% but uh, yeah you're right it's a great like kind of kill
0: switch And that is where we're going to end it today for part one with Brent Lyons of Solving Sounds Podcast. Be sure to head over to any one of the podcasting apps and subscribe to Solving Sounds Podcast. Join us next Thursday as we get into part two and we start talking about the recording process of Brent's album In Flow. And if you've made it this far, by all means, you guys should head over to fretbuzzthepodcast.com And click on the old submit button and submit your songs Uh, we would love I would love to sit down and hear what you guys have Uh, it doesn't matter if it's finished or if it's just an idea or whatever I tell all my students the more you write the better you get everybody always seems to get stuck up on this "Ah, it's not so good it doesn't matter put it out there I know it's sometimes a little hard to expose yourself, but the more and more you do it, the easier and easier it becomes. So by all means, head on over to fretbuzzthepodcast.com and submit your songs. Uh, if you haven't already, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Um, yeah. Thank you for listening. Uh, we're closing in on episode 50. We've got some really good uh, guests coming up fret buzz the podcast is, is labor of love for me i really enjoy the process and i couldn't do it without you guys as always if you guys have any topics that you would like us to cover or any guests that you have in mind that would be great for the show uh, hit me up at aaron at FretBuzzThePodcast the podcast.com uh, i'd love to hear from you or even if you have just something to say give us some feedback or just say hi to me by all means let me know Uh, i'd love to hear from you guys Um, other than that thank you once again for listening to fret buzz the podcast it's been a pleasure and i can't wait for you guys to hear the guests that we have coming up thank you have a good one and we'll talk to you next time on fret buzz the podcast